Hello, and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. I'm Susan Elder, and here at Joint State, we research policy topics within the Commonwealth and discuss them in our podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode will focus on long-term care facilities. Today, I'm here with our Executive Director from Joint State, Glenn Pasowitz. Hello, Susan. And also Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer and co-host for the podcast. Hi, Susan. Today, Brian is actually our project manager for the report that we will be discussing. We also have Lydia Hack joining us. Lydia worked on the project with Brian. Welcome, Lydia. Hello, Susan. Glenn, could you give us a little bit of background about this resolution? Senate Resolution 288, prime sponsor, Senator Judy Ward, directed the commission to conduct a study of the relationship between long-term care facilities and Medicaid funds and on the work environment, the level of care provided, wage rates, rates charged by contract staffing agencies, the increase in wages from 2018 to the latest available data that we could get, the effects of inflation, staffing ratios, And there were other elements in there as well. So there were quite a few pieces of information that were collected for this report. Thanks for that overview, Glenn. Brian, could you give us a brief layout of the types of facilities or how they're defined in Pennsylvania as we're starting here? There are three types of facilities, and they can be distinguished typically by how much care they provide to residents. Personal care homes provide assistance with daily living tasks uh, like eating, mobility assistance. They need help with things that have become difficult for these residents, either due to old age or disability. The next type is assisted living residencies. They have a more rigorous certification process and training requirements, and they're created with the idea that people living in these facilities want to be able to age in place and take on additional care as they need it. That way, they don't need to be uprooted as they age. The final type is skilled nursing facilities. These provide medical care to the residents. We focused most of our resources on this report for this final category for a few reasons. The first two categories aren't funded by Medicaid right now in Pennsylvania. Because of this, there weren't as many requirements that they released their data to the public. So we don't have as clear of an idea about their operations. Brian, the news media has been picking up on this report over the past past 24 hours. It's been mentioned a number of times. And one of the key points that's framing the conversation is the expected population of seniors in Pennsylvania over the next couple decades. Can you comment on that? One of the things I tried to call attention to early in the report is that we're on a bit of a time crunch for this issue. By the end of the decade, all of the baby boomer generation will be 65 or older. And that's an additional some 60,000 seniors in Pennsylvania for a total of 2.8 million people. And it's estimated that maybe 70% of these people will need some kind of long-term care, which may be just provided by their families, but over 20% of these people will need over five years of long-term care. We really need to be preparing ourselves to face this challenge. One of the things that I call attention to a bit later in the report is that over the last decade, there's been an almost 5% drop in the number of beds per 100,000 people. And part of this is because our population of elderly residents is getting larger, but our state institutions are in a bit of a holding pattern 
in part due to lack of funding and difficulty filling care positions. I did some basic projections based on census data. I estimated that if nothing's done, that there'll be almost 14% drop in the number of beds available proportionally throughout 2030 and 2040. Brian, that is astonishing that we're going to be at that level. And it's a little bit intimidating, to be honest, that the system is going to be challenged to that extent. So Lydia, the resolution asked to look at whether the need for specific expertise or certification had changed. But can you give us a quick rundown of the different types of direct care staff and whether you'd seen that there's an increase in the need for a specific training and expertise in the care for the residents? Thank you, Glenn. I'll start with the answer to your question in terms of increased need, and the answer is yes. But let's step back and talk about the three levels of nursing care that work together to provide care for the residents. So the first is a registered nurse, and the main role of that position is to develop, coordinate, and implement comprehensive patient care plans with medical and clinical staff. She is supported with licensed practical nurses, and their main function are to monitor resident care and supervising other nursing staff. And lastly, we have the certified nursing assistants with the role of assisting with the personal hygiene, dressing, bathing, and feeding of the residents. Specifically, in terms of the certifications, some examples of registered nurse certification include the PIC or midline catheters, wound care, geriatrics, and any mental health certification. And currently, this qualification is highly sought in staff. For licensed practical nurses, the most valuable certifications include intravenous long-term care and pharmacology, including administering chemotherapy and ICU advanced life support medications. These skill sets are critical to serving all residents of long-term care facilities, making qualified staff essential to the care equation. My next question is, it seems that the bulk of the information that was asked for in the resolution was about Medicaid reimbursement for workers in the facilities. And, you know, am I correct in how I'm I'm seeing that? In a bit of a roundabout way, yes. It's important for listeners to understand that in Pennsylvania, only skilled nursing facilities are currently eligible for Medicaid, and these Medicaid payments make up the majority of the revenue for these facilities. Medicaid allows for a daily reimbursement rate per person up to a specified amount, which is currently sitting around $250 a day. One of the issues is when the cost of running these facilities and taking care of these residents becomes higher than that reimbursement amount, this causes a lot of problems gradually at first, but then they start to snowball. So this will affect employees, how much they're paid, and what the staffing complement looks like, and whether facilities are even accepting patients up to their full capacity. Thanks, Brian. Could you give us a little bit of a sense of your process in this research? What were some of the different groups that you talked to as you were putting this together? And can you give us a sense of the range of people who provided information to Joint State? For this project, we mostly stuck to 
different organizations that had previously compiled this information and had already posted it. So one of them is the Department of Health hosts their medical assistance cost forms that these providers have to submit. So we have a lot of data from nursing facilities on the salary expenses and hours work that they've recorded. Similarly, the Centers for Federal Medicaid and Medicare was another source of information. It detailed a lot of information on medical care workers. Our intern at the time, Dan Nguyen, did a fantastic job collecting and reformatting this data for us so we could put it in the report. Brief shout out to our former intern, Dan Nguyen. We also got a lot of information from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They had a lot of information on wages and historical employee counts over the years that I would suggest listeners go to the report if they are interested in that information. I'd also like to thank Zach Schamberg and his team at the Pennsylvania Health Care Association. Not only did they meet with Lydia and I early in this study to help get our team accustomed to the topic, but they also independently released surveys, which we cited in our final report. These surveys gave us insight into not only nursing facilities, but also the personal care home and assisted living facilities as well. One of our main takeaways from looking at these surveys is that low staffing counts were leading to waiting lists of around three people per facility and these facilities weren't operating up to their total capacity, even though they had more room because of staffing issues. And I have an idea of where some of those staffing issues may have come from, because with so many of the reports we had worked on over the past couple of years, COVID-19 has had a big presence. Can you explain some of the pandemic's impact on these facilities? One tragic result of this pandemic is it's, it's very hard to implement procedures that can adapt to changing circumstances of a pandemic and make sure that the residents and staff were adequately protected. And as a result, thousands of people lost their lives and healthcare workers continued to, to give the care they'd always given despite dangerous conditions. It was a very difficult time to work at one of these facilities and it added a lot of stress for workers for what was already a very strained environment. And overall, these were just some factors that were affecting the, the workplace. It led to large numbers of nursing staff leaving throughout 2020 and 2021. We estimated that since 2018, there's 8.6 thousand fewer workers in these facilities. And contracted workers were able to come in and fill maybe half of these lost positions. During the pandemic, there was circulated media reports of traveling nurses jumping around the country with their pay escalating to thousands and thousands of dollars a week. And it was kind of sensationalized. But what we found by looking at the data is often these places were kind of remote or in very dire need, and they were places that could afford the rates. But what was happening in Pennsylvania at the time was much less and contracted workers at nursing facilities weren't making the same kind of money as traveling nurses for hospitals. Lydia, can you speak a little bit to the workplace environment and what impact it has on staff retention and morale? Thank you for your question. Nursing staff fatigue combined with job dissatisfaction are key contributors to staff turnover and pose significant threats to patient safety. 
nursing home registered nurses report higher rates of burnout and job dissatisfaction than registered nurses employed in any other clinical setting, including hospitals. Studies have found focusing on specific organization characteristics has been independently associated with both better nursing home quality and reduced nursing staff fatigue and job dissatisfaction. Some contributing practice environment processes and procedures include engage direct care staff in shared decision-making, foster strong nurse leaders, maintain evidence-based nursing care standards, support active quality assurance programs, provide opportunities for both staff advancement and professional growth, and encourage interdisciplinary teamwork. Long-term care facilities adopting these internal processes and procedures encourage staff support and retention while simultaneously promoting safe, effective care. Brian, you briefly mentioned kind of the contract versus the staff nurses and payment. Could you give us some more detail on your findings in the report and where that situation is at right now? Of course, Susan. So like you said, a major part of this resolution is they want us to look at what both staff and contract positions were making and also to compare those numbers to inflation. And what we found is that over the last 20 years, these wages have been keeping up with inflation. However, one of the things we note in the report is that if historically a position has been undercompensated, merely keeping up may not make an attractive job position in a time of economic hardship. So specifically for contracted workers, we found that these nursing facilities paid 40 to 80% more compared to the staff positions, the same type. And when you factor in agency fees, it it could jump to 73 to 90% more based on our estimations. Rising labor costs make up one of the most expensive parts of running a nursing facility. And from what we were able to see, there didn't seem to be any widespread instances of providers increasing rates well over inflation, as some people feared, but it almost didn't matter, as was my takeaway, because when you have a system that has a fixed reimbursement amount, there doesn't need to be price gouging for those services to become unaffordable. Okay, that makes sense. During this time in 2022, the Pennsylvania Department of Health promulgated new regulations for skilled nursing facilities. Can you give us some information on what areas these regulations addressed and maybe some detail? Sure. One of the changes that's been discussed a lot in this field is raising the amount of direct care hours that residents receive. And federal studies, some conducted in the early 2000s, estimated that around 4.1 hours of direct care per resident is an ideal rate. But what's been discussed by the providers is that this isn't really a realistic rate in the current environment when people are just struggling to find workers. So the Department of Health landed on a compromise and will be moving from the current standard of 2.7 hours of direct patient care to 2.87 in July of 2023. And the following year, it will increase to 3.2 hours. We found that this is important when we were reviewing the data because we estimated nursing facilities receiving nine fewer minutes of direct care hours than they were five years ago. It's about a 4% decrease. Oh, wow. So at a time when the department is trying to minimally move the hours up a little bit, the reality and the practice is showing that 
those staffing hours have gone down slightly. So I'll just throw this out there, Brian and Lydia. Are there any other recommendations that you feel ought to be highlighted? Sure. Earlier, we talked about the Medicaid reimbursement rate. We recommend we increase this amount by 12 and a half dollars a day that would help adequately fund the system. Recommended that direct care workers, especially the lower level working positions, need a wage increase to make their to make their wages more uh, competitive with with other types of healthcare work. And just one clarification: so when you say twelve and a half dollars per day, you mean per patient per day? Yes, the total increase would be up to two hundred and sixty three dollars per day per patient is what we estimate. And Glenn, I'd like to highlight the recommendation to improve training opportunities for direct care workers. More innovative approaches to training may allow a broader selection of people to be trained to become direct care workers. Oh, and finally, I guess we should say we we should addressing negative stigma surrounding people who work in direct care. That way they could attract new people to these positions and then they'll be treated better once they're there. Thanks, Brian and Lydia, for highlighting some of the recommendations from the report and for taking time out of your schedule to talk about long-term care facilities in Pennsylvania. If you're listening and you'd like more information, either about Joint State or this study in particular, please refer to the link to our website in the show notes. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks for listening.